God bless us and the Virgin protect us. Once again, I want to explicitly acknowledge my debt and gratitude to Our Lady of Fatima. She asked to get the credit for anything good, true or beautiful in these Novena Conferences. All the faults are mine. Ave Maria Purissima. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our last conference, we considered the second secret of Fatima, which pertains to salvation of nations and the social order, and to persecution or freedom for the Church. We saw that Our Lady promised peace in the conversion of Russia, if her three requests were heeded. To pray the rosary, to make the five communions of reparation on the first Saturdays, and to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. We saw that she warned of terrible punishments if her requests were not heeded. That if people did not cease offending God, a worse war would break out, and God would punish the world by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and the Holy Father. We saw that although there have been many consecrations of the world to the Immaculate Heart, as Cardinal Burke stated on May 19th, quote, In fact, the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary did not take place as she requested. And the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays did not become the practice of the Universal Church. It is more important now to make a specific consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart as the Mother of her God requested at Fatima. Close quotes. We saw that true to Our Lady's warning, in January 1938, God filled the night sky with a red aurora, the great sign that he was about to punish the world for its crimes, that God was resolved to purify in their blood all the nations which wanted to destroy his kingdom in souls, and yet that he would have been appeased and granted pardon if people would have prayed and done penance. We saw that if Our Lady's requests were not heeded, Russia would spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Church. In order to understand the errors of Russia, we spent some time considering cultural Marxism. And we saw that the founders taught that communism was impossible in the West until both Western civilization and Christianity were destroyed. We saw that the cultural Marxists chose the long march through the institutions as a means of accomplishing their goals, and that this meant that all cultural barriers to Marxism had to be removed or reconfigured, starting with the traditional family and moving on through the schools, universities, seminaries, the arts, science, entertainment, the mass media, and so forth, until the people would embrace the ideas that they had rejected, and they would be open to a takeover by the cultural Marxists. We took a look at the work of the Frankfurt School, which focused on destroying traditional Christian culture in the United States. We saw that in order to destroy the culture, the Frankfurt School specifically recommended the creation of racism offenses, continual change to create confusion the teaching of sex and homosexuality to children, the undermining of schools and teachers' authority, huge immigration to destroy identity, the promotion of excessive drinking, the emptying of churches, an unreliable legal system with bias against victims of crime, 
promoting dependency on the state or state benefits, the control of and dumbing down of media, and encouraging the breakdown of the family, and that those are some of the errors of Russia. We saw that the Frankfurt School emphasized the importance of attacking the authority of the father, denying the specific roles of father and mother, and denying families their rights as primary educators of their children, and that those are some of the errors of Russia. We saw that the Frankfurt School emphasized the importance of abolishing differences in the education of boys and girls, of declaring women to be an oppressed class and men to be the oppressors, of abolishing all forms of male dominance, hence the presence of women in the armed forces, and that those are some of the errors of Russia. Now in that light, it's important to note that these sort of errors of Russia are on display daily inside the church. Some dioceses have the practice of filling the chanceries with women positions of power, including even making women the chancellorettes. And of course, we've all seen the almost universal presence of women in the sanctuary, girl altar boys, all these women performing the roles proper to deacons by doing the readings and giving out Holy Communion. We saw that the current notions of political correctness, diversity, choice, sensitivity, sexual orientation, reproductive rights, sex education, safe sex, safe schools, safe environments, inclusion, and tolerance all come from the cultural Marxists, and that these are some of the errors of Russia. We saw that the sexual revolution is a creation of the cultural Marxists who discovered if women were immersed in a social situation in which it seemed like everyone is doing it, they would have a difficult time preserving their moral standards and inhibitions. And that from a cultural Marxist point of view, establishing that very sort of atmosphere is the function of sex edge classes, the porn-drenched mass media, and most especially the entertainment industry. We saw that the governments of the United States and Israel advocate flooding societies with regular network television shows, porn, drugs, and gambling, so as to demoralize the youth. And we considered specific examples of them actually employing these very techniques, specific examples of the military application of the cultural warfare of the Frankfurt School, specific examples of the military use of porn to demoralize and disrupt conservative and relatively stable societies. We suggested that everyone here ought to spend some serious time thinking through this, since our country is basted in this filth 24-7. TVs, advertising, movies, billboards, magazines, the internet. And since our country is more responsible than any other for projecting this filth globally 24-7. And that these are some of the errors of Russia. We saw that the cultural Marxists also discovered that the idea of God evaporates from the minds of seminarians, priests, and bishops who become enmeshed 
and sexual vice. We saw that Russia is now convinced that Washington is preparing for U.S. preemptive nuclear strike against Russia thanks to such things as a neoconservative Republican policy calling for the United States to take preemptive military action to suppress potential threats from other nations and also to prevent any other nation from rising to superpower status. We briefly considered the religious errors of Russia and we saw that the first and most serious error pertains to Our Lady and that the Orthodox deny that Our Lady was immaculately conceived. We saw that the second error pertains to the Orthodox concept of church unity and the role of the Pope. That the Orthodox have splintered themselves into all kinds of particular independent national churches and do not recognize any ultimate authority and in so doing reject the clear gospel teaching of Christ regarding the primacy of Peter, the Bishop of Rome, over the church. We saw that the third error pertains to marriage and that the Orthodox allow a man to keep turning in his wife for a new model for a grand total of three wives. We saw that the fourth error pertains to Holy Communion and that the Orthodox allow these divorced and so-called remarried people who are actually living in sin to receive Holy Communion and thus they officially allow sacrilege. And we saw that the error whereby the Orthodox churches govern themselves, electing their own bishops and organizing their own lives, has been promoted in Rome at the Synod of Bishops under the title of decentralization. We saw that the errors of the Orthodox, who pretend that people who are living in sin are actually married, and who then compound that scandalous recognition by extending to those poor sinners an official invitation to make sacrilegious communions, we saw that these errors of Russia have both been heavily promoted in the application of Amoris Laetitiae. And it's worth noting that these very errors of Russia were first promoted on a grand scale in Catholic circles, not by the so-called liberals, but by the traditionalists by such groups as the Society of St. Pius X, who for decades, in a direct repudiation of the teaching of the Council of Trent, have encouraged countless couples to simulate the sacrament of marriage in their chapels, and thus to live together without the benefit of an actual sacramental marriage, and yet, at the same time, to continue receiving Holy Communion. We saw that the Pope, to varying degrees, has shown his approval for active adulterers to be given Holy Communion in the Buenos Aires pastoral region of Argentina, in the Diocese of Malta, and in the Diocese of Rome. We saw, and are seeing, in other words, many of our supposedly Catholic leaders embracing these religious errors of Russia, and in so doing, actually and literally advocating for pastoral practices that will bury their people and any priests that go along with them into the very depths of hell. So much for our review. Let's get started. St. John Paul II taught, quote, there are no mere coincidences in the plans of divine providence. 
close quote. On May 13, 1917, the very day that Our Lady first appeared in Fatima, Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pius XII, was consecrated a bishop by Pope Benedict XV in the Sixteen Chapel, right in front of Michelangelo's magnificent painting of The Last Judgment. He became the Vatican Secretary of State under Pius XI. The book Pius XII Before History records some prophetic remarks he made during conversations in 1933. Cardinal Pacelli, quote, Suppose that communism is the most visible among the organs of subversion against the church and the tradition of divine revelation. Thus we will witness the invasion of everything that is spiritual, philosophy, science, law, teaching, the arts, the media, literature, theater, and religion. Close quote. We will witness the invasion of everything that is spiritual, philosophy, science, law, teaching, the arts, the media, literature, theater, and religion by the organs of subversion against the church and the tradition of divine revelation. And that is exactly what we've seen. That is the long march through the institutions. In one prophetic sentence, Cardinal Pacelli summarized the agenda of the cultural Marxists. He continued, speaking explicitly of Fatima, quote, I am concerned about the confidences of the Virgin to little Lucia of Fatima. The persistence of Our Lady in face of the danger that threatens the church is a divine warning against the suicide of modifying the faith, liturgy, theology, and soul of the church. Close quote. Our Lady of Fatima brought a divine warning against the suicide of modifying the faith, liturgy, theology, and soul of the church. But since his time, haven't we modified each one of those? Is there anything we haven't modified? Cardinal Pacelli, quote, I hear around me partisans of novelties who want to demolish the holy sanctuary, reject the adornments of the church, and make her remorseful for her historical past. I am convinced that the church of Peter must affirm her past, or else she will dig her own tomb. Close quote. Haven't we, for the most part, demolished the sanctuaries? and rejected the adornments in our churches? Haven't we made any number of public apologies for the historical past of the church? In what sense do we affirm the church's past? Cardinal Pacelli, quote, A day will come when the civilized world will deny its God, when the church will doubt as Peter doubted. She will be tempted to believe that man has become God, that his son is only a symbol, a philosophy like so many others. And in churches, Christians will search for the red lamp where Jesus awaits them, 
like the sinful woman crying out before the empty tomb. Where have they taken him? Close quotes, Cardinal Pacelli. Hasn't that day already come? Are we not living in that day when in churches we have to search for the red lamp where Jesus awaits us, like the sinful woman crying before the empty tomb? Where have they taken him? Hasn't that day already come? Are we not living in that day when the civilized world has denied its God? Hasn't that day already come? Are we not living in that day when the church is doubting as Peter doubted? Or even worse, what else can this statement possibly mean taken from the homily preached on December 27, 2015? by the successor of St. Peter. Speaking of the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, Pope Francis stated, quote, instead of returning home with his family, he stayed in Jerusalem in the temple, causing great distress to Mary and Joseph who were unable to find him. For this little escapade, Jesus probably had to beg forgiveness of his parents. The gospel doesn't say this, but I believe that we can presume it." Close quote. Pope Francis. Jesus probably had to beg forgiveness of his parents. Are we not living in that day when the church is doubting as Peter doubted, or even worse? What else can this statement possibly mean when speaking of Our Lady of Sorrows on May 29, 2015, the successor of St. Peter stated, quote, I often think of Our Lady when they handed down to her the dead body of her son, covered with wounds, spat on, bloodied, and soiled. And she in that moment remembered what the angel had said to her. He will be king. He will be great. He will be a prophet. And inside, surely, with that wounded body lying in her arms, that body had suffered so much before dying. Inside, surely she wanted to say to the angel, liar, I was deceived. Close quote. Pope Francis. Inside, surely Our Lady wanted to say to the angel, liar, I was deceived. Communism is the most visible of the organs of subversion against the church. We will witness the invasion of everything that is spiritual by the organs of subversion. Philosophy, science, law, teaching, the arts, the media, literature, theater, and religion. I'm concerned about the confidences of the Virgin to little Lucia of Fatima. The persistence of Our Lady in face of the danger that threatens the Church is a divine warning against the suicide of modifying the faith, liturgy, theology, and soul of the Church. I hear around me partisans of novelties who want to demolish the Holy Sanctuary, reject the adornments of the Church, and make her remorseful for her historical past. 
A day will come when the civilized world will deny its God, when the church will doubt as Peter doubted. She will be tempted to believe that man has become God, that his son is only a symbol, a philosophy like so many others. And in churches, Christians will search for the red lamp where Jesus awaits them, like the sinful woman crying out before the empty tomb. Where have they taken him? As we've seen in Rome on April 12, 1937, Our Lady appeared to Luigina Sinapi at a small cave at Tre Fontane and told Luigina that she would return to that place and convert and make use of an enemy of the church, a man who wanted to kill the Pope. She told Luigina to deliver that message to a cardinal and also to inform him that he would soon be Pope. And as we've seen, all that came to pass. That cardinal was, of course, Eugenio Pacelli, who some two, two years later became Pope Pius XII. As we've seen, in October 1942, without the bishops, Pope Pius XII consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. As we've seen, on April 12, 1947, exactly 10 years to the very day that Our Lady had appeared to Luigina, and at the same small cave near Tre Fontane, Our Lady appeared to Bruno Cornicciola, a blaspheming, wife-beating thug who had taken an oath to kill the Pope. He was instantly converted and given a message to deliver to the Pope. As we've seen, Pius XII wept when Bruno read him the message, and the Pope told Bruno that on April 12th, he himself had received confirmation directly from Our Lady of her appearance in Rome. But what we haven't considered until now is one particular aspect of that message that Our Lady had Bruno deliver, and that has to do with her assumption. Let's turn to that now. On May 1st, 1946, the year before the version of Revelation appeared to Bruno, Pius XII had asked all the bishops of the world this question, quote, Do you, venerable brethren, in your outstanding wisdom and prudence, judge that the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin can be proposed and defined as a dogma of faith? Do you, with your clergy and people, desire it? Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. And in fact, when she appeared at Trefontani the following year, the Virgin of Revelation gave a heavenly response to the Pope's question when she stated to Bruno the following, quote, Because I'm immaculate, my body could not decay and did not decay. After three days of sleep and ecstasy of love, I was brought to the throne of divine mercy by my son, with the angels, to be made mediatrix of divine graces among obstinate sinners. My body did not know corruption, my flesh could not decay, and did not decay, so as to be queen of the children of the resurrection. Now and always, I am the kingdom of the divine trinity. Close quote. We'll pick up the rest of the story from the brilliant work of Frere Michel of the Holy Trinity. On October 29, 1950, the statue of the Pilgrim Virgin of Fatima arrived in Rome.
On the following morning, October 30th, 35 cardinals and over 450 bishops met with the Pope, who for the first time officially informed them of his intention of defining the dogma of the Assumption very soon. At the end of his allocution, he asked them, Is it therefore pleasing to you, venerable brethren, that we proclaim and solemnly define as a dogma revealed by God the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into heaven? And they unanimously assented. That day, October 30th, was the eighth anniversary of Pius XII's consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The statue of the Pilgrim Virgin of Fatima had stopped for three days in a church located right behind the Vatican Gardens on land belonging to the Holy See. The Pope went for a walk in the garden. Pius XII, quote, On October 30, 1950, around four o'clock in the afternoon, I took my usual walk in the Vatican Gardens, reading and studying various official papers as usual. I went up the path to the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes to the top of the hill. At a certain moment, having lifted my eyes above the papers I had in my hand, I was struck by a phenomenon I had never seen before. The sun, which was fairly high, looked like a pale yellow opaque globe completely surrounded by a luminous halo, which nevertheless did not prevent me at all from staring attentively at the sun without the slightest discomfort. A very light cloud was before it. The opaque globe began moving outwards, slowly turning over upon itself and going from left to right, and vice versa. But within the globe, very strong movements could be seen in all clarity and without interruption. The same phenomenon repeated itself on the following day, October 31st. Close quote, Pope Pius XII. The Pope's housekeeper, Sister Pasqualina, reports that after returning from his walk, the Holy Father immediately described the spectacle he had just witnessed and added, quote, The following day, full of hope, we too went to the gardens in the hope of seeing the spectacle too, but we came back disappointed. The Holy Father immediately asked, Did you see it? Today it was exactly like yesterday. Close quote. The next day, November 1st, 600 to 700,000 pilgrims, along with 36 cardinals and over 600 bishops, were present at the ceremony, in which the Pope solemnly declared that, quote, It is a dogma divinely revealed that Mary, the Immaculate and Ever-Virgin Mother of God, at the end of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Close quote. Pius XII taught that the Assumption is really the consequence of the Immaculate Conception. As he later wrote, quote, the two dogmas are intimately related. These two singular privileges bestowed upon the Mother of God stand out in most splendid light at the beginning and the end of her earthly journey. For the greatest possible glorification of her virgin body is the complement, at once appropriate and marvelous, of the absolute innocence of her soul, 
which was free from all stain. Close quotes the Vicar of Christ. During the ceremony, there was another beautiful sign in the sky described by Cisco Pasqualina. Quote, a deep blue sky extended above the cupola of St. Peter's. Beside the sun, one could also see the crescent of the moon, just above the cross of the cupola. How was this possible? The others saw it and were astonished. As we recite on lauds of that day, who is this? Fair is the moon, beautiful is the sun. Already it was most extraordinary that the day was so warm and so clear, and this crescent of the moon over the cupola of Michelangelo was a wonderful symbol." Close quote. The ceremony concluded with the papal mass of the Assumption. That afternoon, the Pope took his usual walk in the Vatican Gardens. And again, he saw the dance of the sun. Pius XII, quote, the same phenomenon took place on November 1st, the day of the definition, and then on November 8th, the octave day of the same solemnity. Since then, nothing more. Close quote, Pope Pius XII. So Pius XII was the only witness of this miracle. And that raises the question, what does this mean? We'll take a few minutes to consider just that. Each time Pius XII saw the vision, he was walking in the Vatican Gardens. The symbolism here is pretty obvious. Here we see the spiritual father of the human race walking in the garden. And just as Adam stood for the whole human race, so the Pope stands for the whole church. So this is a reminder of the fall and an encouragement to the church to be obedient. The arrival of the Pilgrim Virgin statue in a church adjacent to the Vatican Gardens and a subsequent dance in his son both point directly to the events at Fatima 33 years before. We've already seen that when God alters the fixed patterns of sun, moon, and stars, it indicates judgment is looming over those who have wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry. And we've already also seen that it is also a sign of the end of the world. The fact that the Holy Father, and only the Holy Father, saw this miracle is indicative that the message is for him precisely as the spiritual father, the head, the pope. It's an absolute proof given directly to the pope that Our Lady truly came to Fatima and that her message is truly urgent. It's a personal message to him, reminding him that he is the head and that only he can fulfill Our Lady's request to consecrate Russia as she asked. It's a sign that a request could finally be accomplished. And it's a sign that she's there to give him the strength and the grace to do just that right then, to take this opportunity to make the consecration. Pius XII tells us the precise location in the garden where he saw the miracle, by the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes. And as we know, the message of Our Lady of Lourdes was that Our Lady is the Immaculate Conception. And as we've seen, Our Lady's Immaculate Conception and her glorious Assumption go hand in hand and complement one another. So this location shows a symbolic link between the two dogmas, 
and also is evocative of the message of the Virgin of Revelation. Both the date and the location are also symbolic in terms of reparation to the Immaculate Heart. The first time the Pope saw the miracle of the Son, it was the eighth anniversary of his consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart. And again, seeing the miracle while standing near the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes symbolically links the two dogmas of her Immaculate Conception and her glorious Assumption. The Assumption itself is a sign of the absolute perfection of Our Lady's entire life, from her Immaculate Conception, her freedom from all sin, her life of perfect virtue, and complete and total obedience to God. Accepting proclaiming the dogma of the Assumption and connecting it together with the Immaculate Conception would and did make reparation from the Church as a whole, because in this act, the Church as a whole gave public honor to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, whereas the heirs of Russia, especially denying her Immaculate Conception, publicly offend Our Lady. And it's also significant that the proclamation of the dogma was 33 years to the very week after the Bolshevik Revolution. Frere Michel points out other implications of the dates. The Pope saw the Dance of the Sun on October 30th, the date of the official announcement that the dogma of the Assumption was to be defined. Then again on October 31st, the vigil of the definition. On November 1st, the actual date of the definition. And finally, on November 8th, the octave day of the definition. And thus, the miracle was a sign showing that the solemn definition of the dogma of the Assumption was pleasing to heaven. What about the symbolism seen in the sky during the ceremony, as described by the Pope's housekeeper, Sister Pasqualina? Quote, A deep blue sky extended above the dome of St. Peter's. Beside the sun, one could also see the crescent of the moon, just above the cross of the cupola. How was this possible? The others sought and were astonished, as we recite on lauds of that day, Who is this, fair as the moon, beautiful as the sun? Close quote. Now, the scriptural passage that Sister Pasqualina is referring to, the scriptural passage that was recited in the Divine Office at Lodz that very morning, the Divine Office, of course, is the official prayer of the Church, the scriptural passage that was brought to your mind by the view of the sun and the moon just over the cross in the dome of St. Peter's, that scriptural passage is found in the Canticle of Canticles, chapter 6 and verse 9. Quote, Who is she? that comes forth as the morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in array. Close quote. This line is traditionally understood to be referring to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pope Pius XII himself explained the symbolism found in this scriptural passage. Quote, the sacred liturgy does not tire of calling Our Lady fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in battle array. Beautiful as the moon. It is a way of expressing Mary's exalted beauty. As the moon shines resplendent in the dark heavens, so is Mary's beauty set apart from all other beauties, which are but shadows beside her. Mary is the most beautiful of all God's creatures. Bright is the sun. The sun is a source of light, 
warmth and life. Now Mary, beautiful as the moon, shines brightly as the sun and irradiates life-giving warmth. Whenever we speak of her or speak to her, let us not forget that she is really our mother, for through her we received divine life. She gave us Jesus, the source of grace. Mary is the mediatrix and dispenser of graces. Terrible is an army set in battle array. Against the enemy, Mary is also strong and terrible like an army set in battle array. After Adam's pitiful act, the first mention of Mary tells us of the enmity between her and the serpent, the enemy of God and man. As necessary as it is for her to be faithful to God, so necessary it is that she be victorious over the devil. Preserved from all stain, Mary crushed the head of the tempting and corrupting serpent. Whenever one draws near Mary, the serpent flees. Even as when the sun rises, darkness disappears. Where Mary is, Satan is not. Where the sun is, the dark is powerless. Close quote, Pope Pius Twelfth. Where Mary is, Satan is not. Where the sun is, the dark is powerless. So the symbolism seen in the sky during the ceremony, with the sun and the crescent of the moon visible beside it, just above the cross on the dome of St. Peter's Basilica, this symbolizes the beauty, the charity, and the strength of Our Lady, most especially at the foot of the cross, where she stood, faithfully united to the Father's will, as she watched her son die in the most extreme conditions, as she united herself perfectly to his supreme sacrifice. And of course, it is taking place right over the site of the martyrdom of the first pope. That scene in the sky is also reminiscent of another line in scripture, a line never before used in the mass of Our Lady's Assumption until that very day. And in fact, it is the very first line of that mass. That line, first used in the Mass of Our Lady's Assumption on November 1st, 1950, is taken from chapter 12, verse 1 of the Apocalypse of St. John. Quote, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Close quote. So at one and the same time, this conjunction of heavenly symbols reminds us of the martyrdom of St. Peter, of Our Lady's fidelity at the foot of the cross, of the fact that in her military might, so to speak, she would be the protector and defender of the Holy Father in all his battles, of her immense charity, of the fact that she is the mediatrix of all graces, of her unspeakable beauty, of the fact that she's the woman of the apocalypse, and the Virgin of Revelation. All in all, it's a reminder that in the end, her Immaculate Heart will triumph. Pius XII died in October 1958, and on the 41st anniversary of the Miracle of the Sun, October 13, 1958, he was buried in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica. Before we move on, let's ask ourselves a very important question. Why didn't Pope Pius XII 
a Pope who had seen the miracle of the Son, was so obviously devoted to Our Lady. Why didn't he order that all the bishops of the world unite with him and at the same time solemnly consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary? After all, on May 8, 1950, a full six months before he had seen the miracle of his son, Pius XII had already declared, quote, The time for doubting Fatima is past. The hour for action has arrived. Close quote. Before he had seen the miracle of his son, he had already declared that the time for doubting Fatima was past and that the hour for action had arrived before he had seen the miracle of the sun. But in spite of that, he did not act. He did not fulfill Our Lady's request to consecrate Rush to Immaculate Heart and union with the other bishops of the world. Why didn't he do it? Why haven't any of the popes to this very day fulfilled Our Lady's request? We'll spend some time pondering that question. As a preliminary point, let's keep in mind that the messages of Our Lady of Fatima are contingent prophecies that pertain to devotion to Immaculate Heart. They're contingent prophecies that contain blessings of peace and salvation for heeding her requests and warnings of destruction and damnation for not heeding her requests. Since Scripture has a lot to say about contingent prophecies and the hopes of coming to a deeper understanding of why Pius XII or any of the other popes haven't yet consecrated Russia, let's spend some time reflecting with the help of several commentators on scriptural teaching regarding contingent prophecies. And then we'll apply what we've learned to the question of the consecration, okay? So let's get started. In the book of the prophet Jonah, the Lord told Jonah to arise, to go to Nineveh, a huge pagan city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and to preach that in 40 days, Nineveh would be destroyed. And the pagan citizens took this warning seriously. They took it seriously. And when the king of Nineveh got word of Jonah's preaching, he also believed. He personally repented, did penance himself, and then by his proclamation made every effort to ensure that all his subjects took this warning very seriously. In his commentary on this passage, the great Cornelius Elapide states that, quote, by force of the preaching of Jonas, the Ninevites received faith in the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, and by that faith, they believed that Nineveh would truly be destroyed unless they repented, close quote. And so the people from every social class, the greatest to the least, did penance, fasted, and put on sackcloth, a repentance that came from the hearts of the people rather than being opposed on them from above. It's also important to see that Jonas didn't go down a list of the sins the Ninevites needed to repent from. All he told them was that they had 40 days and they're going to be destroyed. The Ninevites were pagans, real, live, genuine pagans. And in spite of that, the prophet didn't go down a list of sins 
they needed to repent from. And do you know why Jonah didn't go down a list? Because he didn't need to. They already knew. Everyone knows. It's written on our hearts, as St. Paul makes clear in Romans 2, quote, When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. See, generally speaking, the issue in repentance is not knowledge. Generally speaking, people know when they're doing wrong. The issue is not knowledge. No, the issue in repentance is in the will. Because people don't want to quit sinning. And when the Ninevites found out that the judgment of God was looming, that they had only 40 days, they didn't respond with things like, don't judge me. It's my choice. I can't help it. God made me this way. Eat, drink, and be merry, for in 40 days we all die. Let's party. Or any of the other stupid excuses for sin and sinful behaviors that we're all so familiar with. The scripture records they knew they were wrong, they knew they were under the judgments of God, and they didn't make any excuses. They took responsibility, they did penance, and cried out to the Lord to have mercy. Now, Jonah's message was a contingent prophecy, a warning of things to come if the Ninevites didn't repent. The Lord himself explains this principle very clearly in the 18th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. If at any time I declare that I will pluck up and break down and destroy a nation, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare I will build and plant a nation, and if it does evil in my sight, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. In other words, God's judgments are contingent upon repentance, and his blessings are contingent upon obedience. And in regard to the repentance of the Ninevites, the scriptures tell us, quote, And God saw their works, they were turned from their evil way, and God had mercy with regard to the evil which he had said that he would do to them, and he did it not. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. And all this applies to Fatima. See, just as God sent Jonah 
with a terrifying warning that his judgment was looming over Nineveh. So also he sent Our Lady to Fatima with a terrifying warning that his judgment was looming over the whole world. But there's one huge, immense, incalculable difference. The Ninevites heeded the warning and repented. God sent Jonah to Nineveh and they heeded his warnings and repented. God sent Our Lady to Fatima. But who's heeded her warnings? And repented. Even little Portugal has divorce, abortion, and so-called homosexual marriages. God's judgments are contingent upon repentance. His blessings are contingent upon obedience. In terms of repentance, Our Lady gave specific warnings to mankind. In terms of obedience, she made specific requests. In terms of warnings, Our Lady showed a terrifying vision of hell and told the children that they had seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. In terms of warnings, during the height of the First World War, Our Lady specifically warned that if people did not cease offending God, then a worse war would break out during the pontificate of Pius XI, and that God would punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. In terms of warnings, Our Lady also specifically warned that if her requests were not heeded, then Russia would spread her heirs throughout the world, causing wars and persecution of the church, that the good would be martyred, that the Holy Father would have much to suffer, and that various nations would be annihilated. In terms of warnings, Our Lady did the miracle of the Son, a miracle of unprecedented and biblical proportions, which, as we've seen, points towards a corresponding message of unprecedented and biblical importance, a very sobering, symbolic warning that God's judgment is looming, that the end of the world is at hand. Could there be any more serious warnings than these? Hell, wars, famines, persecutions of the church, nations annihilated, the end of the world. No. It isn't even possible to conceive of more serious warnings. It isn't even possible to conceive of more serious warnings than these. And yet, in spite of these warnings, and most especially in spite of an absolutely unique, pre-announced, miraculous warning of literally biblical proportions, what sort of fruits of repentance have we seen? in the hundred years since these warnings. 
What nation has heeded her warnings? Who has heeded her warnings? God's judgments are contingent upon repentance, and His blessings are contingent upon obedience. We didn't heed her warnings, and as a consequence, we had World War II. We didn't heed her warnings, and as a consequence, Russia has spread her errors throughout the world and the church. In terms of requests, Our Lady said that people should cease offending God. Our Lady asked that people stop offending God. How's that going? To give some idea of what sort of moral conditions were prevailing in the decade after Our Lady appeared in Fatima with this request, consider this. According to official French government statistics, in 1925, 4 million people, that's 10% of the French population, 4 million people were infected with syphilis. In 1929, four years later, 8 million people, 20% of the French population were infected with syphilis. In just four years, in a country that at that time would have had a majority of baptized Catholics, the number of people infected with syphilis doubled. And it sure didn't double because they were all drinking out of the same bottle of Coke. According to official statistics of the French government, in 1925, 10% of the population of the France was infected with syphilis. And in 1929, just four years later, 20% of the French population had syphilis. And in 1929, the government calculated that during the previous decade, syphilis had killed 1.5 million Frenchmen, as many as had died in the four years of World War I. Syphilis. Our Lady asked the people, stop offending God. And that's just one country. It's indicative of the general moral trends, though, as is clear from a letter which Sister Lucia addressed to the Cardinal Patriarch of Portugal on December 19, 1940. And I quote, Our Lord is dissatisfied and grieved with the sins of the world and of Portugal. He complains about the lack of correspondence, the sinful life of the people, and especially about the lukewarmness, indifference, an extremely comfortable life of the majority of the priests and members of the religious orders. Close quote. Our Lady told St. Jacinta that, quote, war is a punishment for sins. Small wonder World War II broke out. And even after the terrible carnage of that war, and the millions upon millions of deaths. Did men repent and cease offending God? Have morals improved since the Second World War? 
We've already heard the comment made by Pius XII himself when less than four years after the war ended, he stated, quote, we are overwhelmed with sadness and anguish, seeing that the wickedness of perverse men has reached a degree of impiety that is unbelievable and absolutely unknown in other times. Close quote. That was in 1949. What have we seen since then? An absolute explosion of divorce, adultery, fornication, pornography, venereal disease, sterilization, contraception, abortion, homosexuality, perverted marriages, drug abuse, heresy, schism, apostasy, liturgical abuse in the sanctuaries, talking and chaos in the pews, sacrilegious communions, and on and on and on and on. Has anybody heeded Our Lady's request? Given as Our Lady of Fatima told St. Jacinta that wars are punishment for sins, what should we expect? In terms of requests pertaining directly to devotion to her Immaculate Heart, Our Lady asked that the Rosary be prayed every day in order to attain peace for the world, and that the prayer, O my Jesus, forgive us our sin, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy, should be prayed after each mystery. Now, although devotion to the Rosary has flourished to some degree at various times, and in various places, most notably in Austria during the 1950s, when almost 10% of the population was involved in Father Petrus's Holy Rosary Crusade, which resulted in Russia withdrawing from the country. For the most part, a huge upswing in devotion to the Holy Rosary has not been a characteristic feature of the past 100 years. And we've now reached the point where it's actually unusual to find the Rosary prayed before Mass in most parishes, to say nothing of the family rosary. In terms of requests pertaining directly to a devotion to her Immaculate Heart, Our Lady asks that communions of reparation be made on the first Saturdays. In a letter to her former confessor, dated June 20, 1939, Sister Lucia wrote, quote, Our Lady promised to delay the scourge of war if this devotion, the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays, was propagated and practiced we see her avert the chastisement to the extent that efforts are made to propagate it. But I am afraid that we cannot do more than we are doing, and that God in his anger will lift the arms of his mercy and let the world be ravaged by this chastisement. It will be a chastisement such as never before. Horrible. Horrible. Close quote. Cardinal Burke explains, quote, The communion reparation on the first Saturdays did not become the practice of the universal church. There ensued the terrible suffering of the Second World War and its aftermath, the spread of atheistic communism, resulting in fact in the persecution of many nations and of the church in those nations, and the annihilation of some nations. Close quote. In terms of devotion to Immaculate Heart, Pius XII recommended consecration of dioceses, parishes, and families. Quote, it is our wish, consequently, that wherever the opportunity suggests itself, this consecration to the Immaculate Heart of the Virgin Mary may be made in the various dioceses as well as in each of the parishes and families. 
We're confident that abundant blessings and favors from heaven will surge forth from this private and public consecration. Close quote, Pope Pius XII. And in fact, everyone that listens to this conference should make a particular point of consecrating themselves, their families, their homes, the Immaculate Heart. Pastors should make a particular point of consecrating their parishes. Everyone should do this. No exceptions and don't delay. Do it. In terms of requests pertaining directly to devotion to Immaculate Heart, Our Lady had stated, quote, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart, close quote. She came to make that request on June 13, 1929, when she appeared to Sister Lucia and stated, quote, The moment has come when God asked the Holy Father to make, in union with all the bishops of the world, the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart, promising to save it by these means. Close quote. But nothing was done. And so on August 19, 1931, our Lord appeared to Sister Lucia with a terrible warning. Quote, Make it known to my ministers that given that they follow the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of my command, they will follow him into misfortune. Close quote, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Given that my ministers follow the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of my command, they will follow him into misfortune. Now, in order to appreciate how truly frightening that warning is, let's take a moment to consider what our Lord is referring to when he speaks of the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of his command and of following him into misfortune. On June 17, 1689, our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and asked that the King of France publicly consecrate France to the Sacred Heart. But the kings paid no attention to our Lord's request. On June 17, 1789, exactly 100 years to the very day from when our Lord had requested the king to consecrate France to his Sacred Heart, a legislative gathering that had been called together by the king himself revolted against him proclaimed itself to be an assembly of the people, stripped the king of his legislative power, and thus ignited the terrible chaos of the French Revolution. In July of 1790, this assembly passed a bill insisting that the Catholic Church in France be subject to the state. The number of bishops and dioceses were to be reduced, and they were not to be appointed by the Vatican, but rather elected by the citizens. The clergy became paid employees of the government, and they were also required to swear an oath, basically an oath of fidelity. In effect, then, every single priest in France was required to publicly swear an oath that he believed the nation of France was the ultimate authority over all religious matters. Now, what made this even worse was the response of the king, quote, In a moment of terrible weakness, for which he never afterwards ceased to condemn himself, Louis XVI signed the law, requiring this oath, close quote. By signing this bill, the king, in effect, legitimized the claims that the Catholic Church in France was subject to the revolutionary government rather than to Rome. Now, the church has canonized as martyrs at least 191 of the clerics and religious who refused to take the oath because, ultimately, the penalty for that refusal was death. 
Okay, so what about the consecration of France to the Sacred Heart? In the early months of 1792, while living under house arrest, the king privately consecrated France and vowed that if he were restored to power, he would also do this publicly. But it was too late. It was too late to save France from the revolution and the reign of terror. In January 1793, the king was guillotined. His queen followed him later in the year during the reign of terror, a span of some 10 months during which a total of somewhere between 19 to 40,000 people were massacred and over 16,000 people were guillotined in an absolute bloodbath of torture, rape, murder, and cannibalism. So now we have enough historical background to appreciate what our Lord was referring to when he warned that since his ministers were following the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of our Lord's command, they would follow him into misfortune. Our Lord, in effect, is warning that as a consequence of not consecrating Russia in a timely fashion, her heirs will spread and take root, which is exactly what we've seen. And in the resulting societal chaos, ministers of the church including the Pope, will follow the King of France in a misfortune. In other words, they will suffer and die, most likely, by execution. Now, considering the historical context of the execution of the French King in the midst of the social chaos of the French Revolution, it seems this will take place during the catastrophic chastisements resulting from ignoring Our Lady's request. Quote, if my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her heirs throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. Close quote. And didn't the version of Revelation speak of and even show these very things to Bruno? Quote, Praise will be trampled and slaughtered. The dead, blood, blood, blood everywhere. Deaths, imprisonments, beatings and sorrows, so many deaths, so much blood in the street, all against Christians who believe and in love the Eucharist, the Immaculate Virgin, and the Pope. Those who did not deny these three realities were taken, tormented, and killed. She takes me to Big Square and says, Look what they do to my children. Those who remain faithful to the faith and the church of my son in the great persecution for true purification. I see many priests in their cassocks and religious men and women in religious habits of all shapes and colors, all in a row. And the guards push them and drag them one at a time onto a wooden stage. They made them kneel in essence, get rid of the habit. To the answer, no, they took his head and put it on a stump and there they were beheaded by the hangman who had an axe. The blood spurted everywhere, and those who waited for the same martyrdom cried out, These are the souls who cry out under the altar of God. Many priests and sisters are dismembered in St. Peter's Square. While the Pope was celebrating Mass, there was a great confusion, and voices rose threateningly. They advanced towards the altar. The police begin shooting. There are shouts, flee, flee, the Pope is hid. Blood reddens the white cassock and shouts are heard, he is dead. He is dead. Close quotes. 
In terms of requests pertaining directly to devotion to her Immaculate Heart, Our Lady promised that if her requests were heeded, that many souls would be saved, Russia would be converted, and there would be peace. But which of her requests have been heeded to any significant degree? Just before the miracle of the sun, Our Lady said, quote, People must amend their lives and ask pardon for their sins. They must not offend our Lord anymore, for he is already too much offended. Close quote. We should amend our lives and ask pardon for our sins. Since 1917, what sort of response have we seen to this request of Our Lady? This most fundamental request, this basic requirement of the gospel. Have any of her requests been heeded to any significant degree? In response to Jonah's warning of imminent destruction, the pagan citizens of Nineveh actually repented, did penance, and then the king, by his proclamation, made every effort to support and enforce that repentance. But in response to a far more amazing and completely terrifying public, pre-announced warning from heaven, the miracle of the Son of Fatima, and Our Lady's accompanying message, how many Catholics have actually repented and done penance? How many? How many? Why should anyone be particularly surprised then that the Pope's haven't yet done the consecration. God's judgments are contingent upon repentance and His blessings are contingent upon obedience. Let's close this first part of the conference with some excerpts from the last public interview given by Sister Lucia. It was given on December 26, 1957 to Father Augustin Fuentes, who at the time was the vice postulator of the cause Beatification for Francisco and Jacinta. Sister Lucia, quote, Father, the Blessed Virgin did not tell me that we are in the last times of the world, but I understood this for three reasons. The first is because she told me that the devil is engaging in a battle with the Virgin, a decisive battle. It is a final battle where one party will be victorious and the other will suffer defeat. So from now on, we are either with God or we are with the devil. There is no middle ground. The second reason is because she told me, as well as my cousins, that God is giving two last remedies to the world, the Holy Rosary and devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And being the last remedies, that is to say, they are the final ones. That means there will be no others. And the third, because in the plans of the divine providence, when God is going to chastise the world, he always first exhausts all of the remedies. When he sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, then, as we say in our imperfect way of talking, with a certain fear, he presents to us the last means of salvation, his blessed mother. If we despise and reject this last means, heaven will no longer pardon us because we will have committed a sin that the gospel calls a sin against the Holy Spirit. 
This sin consists in openly rejecting, with full knowledge and will, the salvation that is put in our hands. Also, since our Lord is a very good Son, He will not permit that we offend and despise His Blessed Mother. We have His obvious testimony of the history of different centuries, where our Lord has shown us with terrible examples how He has always defended the honor of His Blessed Mother. Father, it is my mission not just to tell about the material punishments that will certainly come over the world if the world does not pray and do penance. No, my mission is to tell everyone the imminent danger we are in of losing our souls for all eternity if we remain fixed in sin. Father, we should not wait for a call to the world from Rome on the part of Holy Father to do penance. Nor should we wait for a call for penance to come from the bishops in our diocese, nor from our religious congregations. No, our Lord has often used these means and the world has not paid heed. So now each of us must begin to reform himself spiritually. Each one has to save not only his own soul, but also all the souls that God has placed in his pathway. Close quote, Sister Lucia. Father, I understand that we are in the last times of the world for three reasons. The first is because the Blessed Virgin told me that the devil is engaging a battle with the Virgin, a decisive battle, a final battle, where one party will be victorious and the other will suffer defeat. The second reason is because she told me and my cousins that God is giving two last remedies to the world, the Holy Rosary and devotion to the Heart of Mary. And being the last remedies, that is to say they are the final ones, which means there will be no others. And the third reason, because in the plans of divine providence, when God is going to chastise the world, he always first exhausts all of the remedies. When he sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, then he presents to us the last means of salvation, his blessed mother. If we despise and reject this last means, heaven will no longer pardon us because we will have committed a sin that the gospel calls a sin against the Holy Spirit. This sin consists in openly rejecting, with full knowledge and will, the salvation that is put in our hands. Also, since our Lord is a very good Son, He will not permit that we offend and despise His Blessed Mother. Father, it is my mission not just to tell about the material punishments that will certainly come over the earth if the world does not pray and do penance. Now my mission is to tell everyone the imminent danger we are in of losing our souls for all eternity if we remain fixed in sin. Father, we should not wait for a call to the world from Rome on the part of the Holy Father to do penance. Nor should we wait for a call for penance to come from the bishops in our diocese, nor from our religious congregations. No, our Lord has often used these means and the world has not paid heed. So now each of us must begin to reform himself spiritually. Each one has to save not only his own soul, but also all the souls that God has placed on his pathway. The devil is engaging in a final battle with the Virgin. God has given two final remedies to the world, the Holy Rosary and devotion to the Mac of the Heart of Mary. When God is going to chastise the world, he always first exhausts all of the remedies. When he sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, 
Then he presents us the last means of salvation, his blessed mother. If we despise and reject this last means, heaven will no longer pardon us. We should not wait for a call to the world from Rome on the part of the Holy Father to do penance, nor should we wait for a call for penance to come from the bishops in our diocese, nor from our religious congregations. Each one of us must reform himself spiritually. Each one has to save not only his own soul, but also all the souls that God has placed on his pathway. Each one of us must reform himself spiritually. Each one has to save not only his own soul, but also all the souls that God has placed on his pathway.